It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions with ideas, resources, and perspective. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 317. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Once a month, we open up the show to questions from the listening community. You can submit your question by going to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. It is a beautiful day in Southern California, and I am spending time with a beautiful person, Bonnie Stahoviak. Welcome back. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me back. I am excited about our questions today. We have a lot of we have we have enough questions for two or three hours. I think I have attempted to get it down to just a, a, a hopefully a, a sizable amount, but we are going to tackle as many as we can here. If we don't get to your question, we may in a future episode. And as I mentioned uh, early on, if you have a question for a future episode, feel free to send it our way. And our first question here, Bonnie, is from Melvin. Melvin writes. I was recently promoted and now managing a group of very experienced peers. Our group has been tasked to take on a new function, which everyone found to be exciting. The training and setup went well. And in fact, we just recently received a very positive feedback on the team's performance from management. That said, my boss came to me about a week ago with news that we may have to cut two members from the group. The decision is strategic and not based on performance, but more one to reduce the cost and two to align the number of heads against the workload. As you can imagine, PS, yes, I can imagine. This is a dilemma for me. (laughs) At this point, I haven't decided on anything yet, but I soon need to. Any tips for how to go about this and how to manage such conversation with the affected employee? Since the move is cost motivated, I'm inclined to choose the people who have the highest salary and look away from the personal side of things, which is what's tearing me apart. Is there a better way to handle such cases? Well, Melvin, thank you for the question. There's certainly no easy way to handle this situation. One of the things that comes up for me in thinking about your question is what's the problem that you're trying to address? So uh, you articulate two of them. One is to reduce cost and secondly, reduce the number of heads against the workload, which essentially sounds to me like the first thing, which is reducing cost. One of the things I try to look at from a strategic standpoint when thinking about these situations is is there a way to address the problem in another way other than doing a layoff? So one way is to do layoffs. One way is to find other opportunities for people in other areas of the company. One way is to establish new revenue streams. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that it sounds like this is a directive, so there may not be those options to do that. Um, I think sometimes, though, many of us, I know I have, we get into this fixed mindset on... We need to solve an immediate problem on cost, and there's one way to do that, and that's reduce headcount. And that is sometimes the best or even the only way to address a particular situation in the short to medium term. There are other answers, though. And um, one of the things I challenge you to do is to be having conversation and thinking about what are potentially other ways you could address that, Um, just as one possible uh, way to go about that. I read a book in the last year or two, I think I mentioned on the show before, called The Automatic Customer. It talks about the new subscription economy that many of us find ourselves in. 
uh, and uh, in many industries, that's becoming more of the norm, especially in the technology space. And that book's really great um, on some strategic ideas, but more importantly, it'll get you thinking about in your organization industry, what are ways that you as a team, as a business could potentially enter into new revenue streams. So I'm curious, like what could you do and where could you leverage the talents of the people who maybe let go to potentially do something entirely different for the organization? Now, if there's an immediate problem that you need to solve as far as cost, that's probably not going to be the immediate answer. But I think it's worth thinking about at least and thinking about what could you do going forward that may approach this in a different way. So if you end up doing layoffs, I mean, a couple of things to keep in mind. One thing is I would be looking at the big picture. And I mean the big picture by not just what's going on today and not what's going on tomorrow to meet this goal, but what do things look like a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. And so on the business side of that, what's the firm trying to do in the long term? What do you foresee and what does your management team foresee as the likely talent you're going to need in again against the next two, three, four, five years? So there is the temptation for any of us who were in this situation to reduce cost and hit a number to pull the people out of the organization who uh, are the greatest cost to the organization. And, and if you just look at it from the numbers, that's tempting to do. But the people who are the greatest quote unquote cost often are the most valuable employees and the biggest contributors to the organization. So one of the things to be thinking about is who is going to align best to the long-term plan and the strategy. Now, that may be that the people who cost the most are you know, the people that you ultimately decide to let go, but it may also be that those people are, in fact, the people you're going to need over the next two to three years the most and are the biggest contributors to the organization. Um, the other challenge here, too, I'm looking at this just from a people standpoint, too, is if your firm decides to um, to part ways with the people who are, are have the highest salaries and are the biggest contributors to the firm, what message does that send to other employees who may be wanting to grow their careers within the organization and may be looking at the organization for long-term career stability? Of course, none of us have stability you know, entirely, um, but it, that could send a very negative message to others in the firm as well too. So again, not saying that's not the way to go, but those are just things to be thinking of. Now, on the people side, what can you do to serve the people if you do need to let people go? How are you, how are you going to make that transition as smooth as possible for them? How can you assist them? Is there things you can do with outplacement services? Are there things you can do to set them up for the next opportunity? So those are not a direct answer to your question, Melvin, but those are the things, the questions I'd be asking myself, both from a big picture perspective, but also tactically in the moment as far as thinking about what I do next in the situation. Melvin, when I read your message, I need to be transparent here. I got angry. I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at the situation that you're finding yourself in. And I do think it's important for me to start out by saying that just to kind of acknowledge my own extreme bias, not all biases are bad, by the way, my own extreme bias against the practice of layoffs. You said in your email that the decision is strategic, and I would argue against that. And, and I'm going to say many of the same themes that Dave said. I just may be a little bit more grumpy as I say them. <laughs> <laughs> strategic is not what you've been asked to do. Strategic is long-term thinking. Strategic 
would be trying to determine where the strengths are and how those strengths in the individuals can be transformed into distinctives for your company and attempting to discover and then leverage those strengths. Strategic will never go in the same box as layoff. And again, I'm not picking on you or wordsmithing you. I'm just angry because I don't think I've, I mean, in fact, I'm not a researcher in this area, but every study I've ever read about layoffs don't work. And they're certainly not long-term perspectives for a company being thinking about being more innovative. As Dave said, we really do have to think about the people that will be affected by these decisions and attempt to, to treat them with the most kindness that we possibly can afford. So to the extent that you might be able to share, gosh, we've got some concerns trying to find some ways to cut costs, you you might be able to discover that there's actually someone on your team who was already thinking about leaving anyway, or you might have someone on your team who is actually in, more interested in another part of the organization. And to the extent that you can be open, then you really are able to realize some ideas that may not come up. Now, one thing I'll say is you do introduce the potential for fear. Layoffs can be a very fearful season, So you do have to balance those things. The openness comes with the ability for you to have information that you don't already have, but the openness also can come accompanied by fear. Having said that, though, one of the things that they talk about with layoffs, the other research that's done around them is it's not the worst thing that you do isn't to the people that leave. The worst thing that you do is to the people that stay. And those are the people that you're hoping will be giving even more to the organization because they just got downsized. So you, you need them to be contributing their best. And if the people that remain in the organization, have you've instilled that trust in them, that you are going to be open, that you are going to be giving them heads up when changes are afoot. And having those more candid conversations, even though it does come with fear, you can help to negate some of the real downsides that potentially happen when people are laid off for the people who are going to stick around because they know they can trust you. you. They know that you're open with them and they know that you're going to be in it sort of for the long haul problem solving together. I wish you the best. I just wanted to say, Melvin, these are really, really hard situations and I wish you didn't find yourself here. You said that so much better than I did. And Simon Sinek has done some really great thinking and speaking on organizations doing really innovative things to do furloughs and be really transparent with employees when something like this happens and and handle it as a team. And I'm going to see if I can track one of those down. I'll put it in the notes for you, Melvin. I'll give you another another set of ideas, I think, to, to tackle. All right. Thanks for the question, Melvin. Let's go to our next question here is from Melissa. Melissa says, I've been an executive director for seven years. During that time, I've had to let employees go for one reason or another. I've always started out with compassionate coaching and not making someone's shortcomings a huge deal, but rather trying to offer additional training and support. Uh, It more often than not leads to needing to create a formal plan for improvement. I've only had that be successful in turning around an employee once. Every other time, it results in the employee becoming hostile, angry, blaming me and or attacking me to the corporate level and trying to make me out as a liar or incompetent. Am I doing something wrong or is this unfortunately how people behave when they're let go? I have a couple of thoughts here. First off, we are all heroes in our own movies. Mm. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? (laughs) I mean, we can try as human beings, as flawed as we are to attempt to 
put ourselves in the other person's shoes, but we're really bad at it as humans. So we tend to like to think of ourselves as good people and competent at what we do and that it's easy to see it as the other person who is sort of the, if, if, if one of us has to be the bad person, <laughs> it's easy to see that as the other person, despite those of us that really try to think less dualistically and more in the complexities of life. So that is one thing that can come out in situations like this. A second thing, like I talked about in the last answer, is many of us have different relationships to work. I find myself, gosh, throughout much, if not all of my career, I mean, I'm just, I'm a very passionate person. I really am a curious person. I get really interested in the work that I do and find a great sense of meaning. And not everyone does that. I I wish that the world had people who really loved what they did and found significance in it. But sadly, I definitely am not in the majority in the case of having that view of work. It it may sound like in my answer so far, I'm completely letting you off the hook as in you must be doing everything right, (laughs) that these people who you've let go must have done everything wrong. And that's actually... That's actually not entirely what I'm trying to say. I tend to, when I have terminated someone's employment, felt like I was at a loss. Like I, like I hadn't, I had not succeeded in those situations. I see it as every time that ends up happening, I have to have done something wrong and looking for how I could grow better as a leader. And it actually relates a lot to the last question. How can I think more creatively? Not everyone is going to be good at every job. And so if I'm dealt, if I come into a position and I'm sort of dealt the set of cards, I want to be thinking creatively because I just think every person has something to contribute. And maybe that person, because it's a small team or whatever, I mean, maybe not on my team, but everyone has worth. Everyone has things to contribute. So is the challenge that I have that they're not able to contribute because they're not motivated? Or is the challenge that they are not their skills aren't developed, or that they just the skills are not a good match for whatever it is? So I, I I guess I would say to you, I'm glad that you're asking the question, "Am I doing something wrong?" I hope you never stop asking that. I ask myself that that a lot, and I think that protects us a little bit from treating other people cavalierly. I don't know if cavalierly is actually a word. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> But let's treat other people with dignity and respect. And let's always ask ourselves that question and really be hard on ourselves anytime we find ourselves in that position and be asking, what could I have done differently on my end of things to have had this be different the next time around? Is it in terms of the feedback that I gave? Is it in terms of just not being creative enough and thinking how to better leverage this person's strengths? And so I'd say, are you doing something wrong? Yes, we're all almost always doing something wrong in these situations, but no, because you are asking the question and just keep doing it and keep reflecting and keep trying to get better as a leader. I agree with Bonnie. If ever there's a pattern that emerges and you're the only common factor in that pattern, it's absolutely worth asking the question. Of course, there's so many variables here, Melissa, we don't know. A couple of resources that I'd absolutely recommend. Uh, first of all, the the Jonathan Raymond's book is screaming out to me right now from the context of your question, Good Authority. He was on episode 306. If you haven't already heard that conversation, I'd absolutely pick up that book because his entire book is about this. And it's a very, very solid five-step model for when people are not performing. How do you handle that and respond to that 
in a caring, but also very direct and appropriate way that involves coaching and involves interacting and involves um, dialogue. His model is very simple, but it's also very powerful. So I certainly suggest reading that book if you haven't already, because I think that it will provide you with the context of a lot of different places that you could try that would begin to answer that question for you. And then the other resource I'd recommend uh, is Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor. She was on episode 302. And Kim has a really uh, great framework as well for challenging directly, but also caring personally. Another framework that would be helpful. I'd start with Jonathan Raymond's book, though, because I think that you'll find those five steps to be really powerful in giving you a starting point for something you might do differently. Our next question is from Carlos. I took over a team 13 months ago that, upon arrival, I discovered is dysfunctional. There are eight people of different ages, genders, and nationalities. Additionally, I replaced someone who was invited to leave because their leadership style apparently focused on encouraging discord and distrust among their subordinates. As a result, their relationships worsened, and they would seem to have an office version of PTSD. There is a great distrust, dislike, and ideas of favoritism or of bad behavior being encouraged and rewarded. It is an environment with which I am unfamiliar. Some members of the team appear receptive to my efforts to rebuild a sense of cohesiveness and accountability to one another. Others may be agreeing, but their actions speak differently. And others do not understand the emphasis I'm placing on teamwork because at present, most of them are stovepiped and do not believe they need to be a team in order to get their work done. My goal is to build a group where people are happy to come to work, will volunteer to help each other out when work becomes overwhelming, can see synergies, efficiencies where we can do more or do things better, and where colleagues in other departments want to join our group because it is seen as a supportive and satisfying place to work. Carlos, I like a lot of the things you've articulated here. Obviously, you've you've inherited a very difficult situation, which a lot of us do when we walk into leadership situations. The one thing that I would challenge you on is the first thing you mentioned here is the goal to build a group where people are happy. I'd probably ditch the goal of happiness because that's ultimately not something you can control. And there's always going to be people who are unhappy for one reason or another. So I would focus more on the leading indicator versus the lagging indicator. The leading indicator be what are the things you can do at this stage with this group of people who've been through this situation that, as you describe, is, you know, with a leader who was encouraging a lot of this. And how do you create an environment where people are more likely to be successful and are going to really connect well as a team. So a few things that I would suggest around that is one is starting to think about what would a shared vision look like in the organization. Um, I did a member cast a, a little while back on shared vision, and I will put that in the notes uh, for, for you because it goes into great detail on this. But at, at its core, I, I like to think about the analogy of stained glass when I think about a shared vision. If you ever been into a cathedral and you see the beautiful stained glass windows, they are um, immaculate versions of tiny little individual pieces put together and arranged in such a way in order to create something that's more beautiful. And I think about a, a shared vision that way. I think about each person in the organization as one of those unique, brilliantly colored, beautiful pieces of glass. 
And as an artist would need to do, the artist is going to first figure out what are the pieces that they have of glass and what are all the unique characteristics of that glass and what do they have to begin with. And then they start to lay out the pattern for what is the broader picture going to look like. And I think about a shared vision almost the same way. You have all these individuals in your organization who all have different talents. They all have strengths. They all have things that they're being challenged with. And that is just like having those pieces of stained glass and thinking about all the different unique characteristics of them. And part of your job as a leader is going to be to understand what each person is looking for right now. What are the unique characteristics they have? What are the unique talents that each person has? And and this is going to take some time uh, to go out and, and figure that out if you don't already know that because you're also working through all the challenging cultural situations. But if you can spend some time talking with each person and and also observing what are the strengths that they bring? What are the things that they do well? Yes, there's all this garbage going on in the organization, but what are the things that they seem really talented at being able to do? And you start you start looking for those things. And then um, you begin as a leader, one of the things you can do very uniquely is you can start to look for where is the strength that Tom has and Carrie has and Melissa has to be able to start to align them together and start thinking about what is the broader organizational vision look like that you can create something more beautiful, bigger and exciting for the organization that includes almost every person, if not every person in that. So you begin to point out how does Tom's talents contribute to the larger vision? How does Carrie's talents contribute to the larger vision? And if you can do that, you are starting to lay the groundwork for getting people invested in a vision for the organization that isn't just yours and isn't just the organization's, but is something positive that's beyond what they've been experiencing over the last few years. And then the other thing that I'd also recommend is laying a groundwork with the team for what clear communication, what clear expectations are going to look like and creating operating guidelines for how your team's going to connect with each other and work together. Um, Susan Gerke was on the show back on episode 192. I'll put uh, put a link to that in the show notes. We talked extensively about how to start creating team guidelines. And one of the things that she points out in that conversation is a good starting point is what did not work well previously and or on a previous team. And you have no shortage of information on that right now with the folks in the organization of going through the challenges you've been through. So that may be a starting point of getting people together, talking about what the guidelines should be. And that conversation may begin with what didn't work. What do we not want to repeat from before? And one of the things Susan also talks about that she does when she's facilitating team guidelines and helping executive teams to work better together is to have each uh, member of the team rate themselves on those guidelines immediately. Once you've established them is rate them and figure out where the team is starting from. So you can begin to see a bit of progress and start to create momentum that will change the tide and the culture of the organization. Carlos, thanks so much for your message. And Dave and I would love to hear how things are going for you after you've had a chance to think through some more of this and take some action. Our next question is from Crystal. My company provides medical billing services. A huge part of what we do involves customer service, not only to patients while trying to collect, but also to providers. I had an employee asked what she could do to better her customer service skills. I suggested some different options, one being to read up on the subject. Do you have any suggestions on helpful reading materials pertaining to providing great customer service, typically over the phone, while trying to collect payment? 
We're certainly getting all the tough questions here today, Bonnie, on uh, tough situations. Collecting payments, of course, uh, one of the more challenging things uh, to make a phone call on and trying to influence uh, people on. And any of you who have done that know that's a very difficult thing to do. Two books for me come to mind. I'm curious what Bonnie thinks too. One is the book Raving Fans, which is a book by Ken Blanchard and his organization on creating a great customer service experience. And, you know, I, I think, you know, We could make an argument as to whether uh, this is a customer service experience of collecting money. But I think a lot of the principles in that book, I know for me early on in my career when I was exposed to that book, provided me just with the attitude of thinking about things from the other person's perspective and what are some of the things you can do tactically as an organization to put the customer first and put that relationship first. And then the other book that I'd recommend you've heard me recommend before is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. The thing that Carnegie's really brilliant at doing is storytelling and getting each of us to think from the other person's point of view. In fact, that's one of Carnegie's principles. Try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view. And when you're in a situation where you're asking people for money and you're trying to collect payments, I think if you can get yourselves in the other person's perspective, that is going to help that to be more successful for both you and that other person. And one of the things that I'm thinking about, oh gosh, um, Blinking on the episode, we had an episode a while back. John Dixon was on the show talking. Uh, he's the one of the chief executives for Spokane County in Washington, and they were talking about how they were handling situations where they were trying to collect payments from folks in their their county community. And they talked about you know how they could look at things and be a little more caring and compassionate. And by doing that and thinking through ways as an organization that they could look at things from the customer's perspective, um, they ended up really. Rethinking their policies and actually being a little bit more lenient with some of their policies, and as a result, ended up collecting a lot more money. And so, I'm going to put a link to the show notes in this episode so you can maybe use that for inspiration as well. But it really comes back to that core concept of are you looking at things from the other person's point of view? And if you're truly trying to get people to make the payment that they often want to make, but they just may not have the the resources to do it. If you can think creatively as an organization and truly look at things from their perspective, you can often often find some innovative ways to handle that and have a lot more success for both parties. I would say that in addition to, yes, we can learn about techniques for better customer service, but techniques can never really replace our sense of mission and purpose and values. And I would want to be having everyone who was collecting payments from patients, for example, I can, I can remember over the times over my decades of life, when I've been going through medical issues, I've never had a situation where I had you know people calling me or that kind of thing. But if I ever had to call them, because I was confused, you get a bazillion pieces of paper, and you don't know which one is actually a bill and which one is just information. And so I was really stressed and I'm dealing with a medical issue and then you're on the phone and I mean, it can be a really, really stressful time. So I would say anything that you could do to provide a greater sense of context, which would give people more empathy for the people that they're needing to call. I think that would probably be the best way that you could have the biggest payoff. And then those other things come more naturally, the techniques and that sort of thing can come a little bit more naturally once we have a heart really for the person that, that we're working for and a sense of meaning and and purpose behind what we do. But Crystal, thank you so much for your question. I'm really glad that you're supporting your employee in this way. 
One of the things you've been hearing on this episode is referencing some of the past conversations, some of the past resources we've been discussing. If you haven't already done this, uh, I've been talking to a few of our listeners the last few weeks as Academy applications were open and even talking to some of our incoming Academy members. And I realized that not everyone knows about the podcast library that's within the free membership. If you haven't already set up your free membership, you're going to want to do that at Coaching for Leaders. Dot com. You can activate it right away. And one of the things you get access to is when you get when you go into the membership portal and go into the dashboard, there's a button there for podcasts. When you click on podcasts, you're going to see an entire list of topics. So, uh, for example, I was thinking about this when we were uh, talking earlier about the question of how do you build a more cohesive team that Carlos had asked. One of the buttons that's in the topics there is team leadership. And so often when I am beginning to think about responses to our questions, or if I'm searching for resources for our Academy members, one of the first things I do is go in, because I can't remember all the conversations that we've had over the last six years with all the experts we've had on the show. Um, I'll go in and I'll look at something like team leadership and I'll start to think of, okay, what are the, uh, what are the top people thinking about this and what are some of the resources that I can pull? And you can do that exact same thing for yourself. Always send in a question, of course, um, but you can also get access to the inf- the best information really quickly. So again, set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It gives you access to a ton of other things too, including the weekly leadership guide and the free audio course. Um, but if you, uh, if you start that, I think you'll find that there's a lot that you can get access to very quickly uh, that will help you to begin answering some of these questions and be an ongoing resource for you when new questions come up. So let's tackle now the next question from June. June writes, often I think I'm good with personal relationships and delivery, but I also feel I don't have enough executive appearance as I'm friendly and comfortable with casual conversation rather than having a tough or high up kind of attitude. What's your suggestion for me to improve the executive image so I can have more of a chance to be noticed or promoted? Well, thank you for the question, June. You may have already heard the episode that Tom Henschel and I aired last week on executive presence using the elevator speech. And that hit on one of the key pieces of executive presence. Um, You didn't use the term executive presence, but I'm I'm putting it under that umbrella, of course. You know, this is something that varies, of course, in every organization. But I, uh, and I, I understand what you're saying. I think there may be a language here about having a high up kind of attitude. And executives and, and leaders in general need to have different ways to handle very different situations. And one of the reasons that Uh, Those of us who are in a leadership role or even an executive role are paid for is being able to adapt and be flexible in lots of different kinds of situations. I'm I'm was thinking about this question, Bonnie, in the context of last weekend. I went to Luke, my our son Luke, and I went and helped a family, a church who is moving, and so we were went over there Saturday afternoon and we're trying to help them to take things apart and put things back together in their new place. And one of the things we had to do was to take apart. A couple of cribs. They have a couple little ones at home. So we disassembled the cribs and then took all the pieces and then reassembled them at the new place. And if you've ever disassembled a crib and reassembled a crib, it is a it is a process. Uh, you need a couple of people to do it because you got to hold things. There's Allen wrenches that you need. You never you never can do it all with one tool because for whatever reason they make the wrench uh, and the the bolts different sizes on different parts of the crib. I don't know why, but that's the way. There must be a reason for it. And so you end up needing like a whole box of tools in order to do this project. And when I think about what good leaders have and what good executives have is that they have a lot of tools. In fact, I think one of the one of the 
jobs that I have and, and have had in the training industry over the last 15 years and even doing the show is to give leaders more tools for their tool belt. And I say that in the context of your question, June, because one of the things that we need is we need different tools to handle different situations. So I think that there is a great strength in you being friendly and comfortable and having casual conversation. And in a lot of situations, that's the right tool to use. It's not the right tool in every situation, though. There are times that you need to be tough, that you may need to be direct, that you may need to challenge directly, as we were talking about earlier. That's a tool you need for that situation. You may need a different tool for another situation. Uh, You may need a tool as a facilitator. Uh, Often, as leaders, we need the tool to coach. And that's one of the reasons that we do such a broad look at leadership on the show to develop those different tools. So I say that from the standpoint of executive presence, because one one of the pushbacks I often get when I start talking about this with people, they say, well, I don't, I don't want to be someone different than who I am. I want to be myself in the workplace. And I, I am a big believer that we should focus on our strengths. We should be ourselves. And I am also a big believer, not instead of, but and, that we need different tools for different situations. And so one of the things I'd encourage you to do is to start to build that tool set, June, of knowing what you do well and that strength you have and what are the situations where that strength is going to work well, but also starting to build those tools that will help you in the situations where you don't handle as naturally as well. So one of them is the one we talked about last week on the show was how to be concise, which I'm not doing a great job of modeling at the moment, (laughs) but (laughs) I keep thinking about that ever since I listened. I'm like, darn you, Tom, you keep making me think about talking too much. Darn you, Tom, why did you do that to us? Yes. Uh, Tom is always, always challenging me in new and good ways. So being concise, being memorable, which we talked about in the episode last time, uh, using numbers, using labels, which Tom mentioned. Storytelling is something that also comes along with being memorable. You've heard a couple of stories from Bonnie and I already today. Part of the reason we do that is because we've been trained and we've realized over time that if we tell a story, it's going to be more memorable than if we just give a couple of resources or some advice. And so those things are designed to, to help. And then the other thing is, is look for ways to reduce friction too. Um, and here's an example, speaking of a story, I had a client I was working with several years ago who was working to get into a higher level position in her organization. And the only reason that was apparent that she wasn't getting the next level position, she was more than qualified. She had been in the company a long time was um, people were giving her feedback that she wasn't, she didn't have the quote unquote executive presence. So similar to the thing you've mentioned. And so we started talking about it. We started thinking about what kinds of things she was doing or not doing that were causing friction for her. And it so happened that part of the time I was working with her was over Halloween. And she came in one day wearing this, um, like uh, on Halloween, wearing this crazy outfit and it was fun and playful and all those things. And yet this is an organization that is a very conservative very traditional view of the world and where all of the executives in the company, you would you would never see that. You would never see someone showing up with a fun uh, Halloween outfit on. And we started talking about that because I, I noticed that. And I was like, and it, it began a really big conversation. We talked about all the kinds of things she does in the workplace that are kind of fun and playful and who she is. And we ultimately came to the realization that if she wanted to move up in the organization, that that was causing friction for her, that she didn't look like and she didn't act like a lot of the rest of the executive leaders in the organization. So again, back to the the point that I was making a moment ago is, you know, we want to be ourselves. And 
I love what Jurgen Apollo said on the show uh, last year. You know, it's okay to be a little weird, but you don't want to be too weird. <laughs> so if one of the things that you're, you're thinking you're struggling with as far as executive presence is also looking around the organization, looking at the people who are perceived to have executive presence and look at what kinds of things are they wearing? How are they having conversations? What kind of things do they talk about? What kind of feedback do they give? What kind of, how are they being concise or not being concise? And starting to find the tools that you need in order to be uh, be more in alignment with that within the organization. And from my perspective, that's not changing yourself. That is, how do I reduce friction in order to serve people well? How do I align in such a way where I reduce friction where those things don't be the things that people are, are noticing? The things that they're noticing is me and my influence in the organization. We've captured everything in the show notes and this week's weekly leadership guide. So many of the resources we mentioned, including the uh, videos to Brené Brown and Simon Sinek, which we talked about. Oh, I mean, if only every organization was aligned with what they teach, it would be a very different world. I'd encourage you to check out their work if you haven't already. And also to check out some of the past episodes that support the conversation today. And we mentioned several of them in today's conversation. Episode 137, The Power of Servant Leadership. John Dixon was on the show and talked about the way to approach servant leadership in the organization. And one of the examples he used was how uh, his county in Washington is working to do a better job with collections in order to serve people well. And the question that was asked earlier on that made me think about that episode. Uh, it's a great a place to start if you're looking for some innovative ways of how to put yourself in the customer's shoes. Episode 137 is the place to go for that. I mentioned episode 192 earlier. Uh, Susan Gerke was on talking about how to create team guidelines. If you have inherited a team that, like Carlos, maybe is not the place you want it to be and you are needing to hit the refresh button, or maybe you're starting a team from scratch, episode 192 is a very important listen because Susan goes through the process she uses when she does executive team building and facilitating teams uh, on how to really create guidelines. It's a step-by-step process on exactly how to approach that. Also, episode 302, I mentioned Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor. She was on the show back on episode 302 talking about how to challenge directly and also how to care personally. If those are both important to you, which hopefully they are as a leader, episode 302 is a place to go. Episode 306, Five Steps to Hold People Accountable. Jonathan Raymond was on the episode back then and talked about those five key steps. Very helpful for Melissa's question, but anyone who's looking to hold people more accountable. And then finally, member cast number four. I air a member cast about every month And I talked earlier about how to create a team vision. If you're looking for a better way to do that, check out MemberCast 4 if you have access to the member portal. If you don't, just go to coachingforleaders.com and activate that. You can access all of those past episodes just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. Dory Clark is returning to the show next week to teach us what ideas leaders should steal from today's top entrepreneurs. Don't miss that conversation. Have a great week and see you next Monday.